0: My name is Greg Finfrock. I'm one of the pastors here at Living Word, and I too want to welcome you as we gather together to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to let you know Pastor David Israel, our lead pastor, and Don Short with him are on their way to Ghana. Even as we speak, they might actually, 1038, I think they're landing somewhere in the 11 o'clock this morning kind of time frame. So we want to keep them in our prayers as they go off to Ghana to do uh, our, our business, our work, our mission in Ghana but I'm going to begin today where, where the sermon series that we have for Lent is called This Changes Everything. This Changes Everything. Now traditionally, when we think of Lent, we think of a, a season of reflection, a, a season of repentance, but, but really throughout the church age, this has been a season for the church to, with, with more intentionality than, than normal to actually focus on our own personal relationship with Christ, about what that relationship with, with Christ looks like, what God is actually calling us to do. And what we see throughout the New Testament is that when people had this kind of a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, they were changed. There was a real life transformation that happened, whoever it was. Now, now, sometimes in the Bible, there are people who did not submit to that kind of a change. There are people who came to Jesus to find out what Jesus was all about, and they actually said, no, I, I'm, I can't follow you right now. I have other things to do. There are actually also stories of people who followed jesus for a season who followed jesus for a time but then at some point on that journey they left when jesus teachings got maybe a little bit harder but others who actually did stick with it who did stay and who followed jesus always found that their encounter with jesus transformed them for the better so throughout lent what we're doing in this sermon series this changes everything is we're looking at stories of different individuals in the bible and how this encounter actually changed them. And each week we're going to kind of lift up some specific aspect of what that change encountered. Last week, Pastor David began with talking about John the Baptist, and it really was a focus on the lordship of Jesus. And Pastor David talked about how John the Baptist actually had followers of his own. He had disciples of his own who followed him. But when he saw Jesus, when he encountered Jesus he understood that Jesus's mission was more important than his own. And his followers actually left from following John the Baptist and became followers of Jesus. There's even a point in John 3.30 where John the Baptist actually says these words, he says, he, meaning Jesus, he must become greater, I must become less. He must become greater, I must less must become less. And this is actually pointing towards what I'm gonna be focusing on today, and that is this trait of humility, the humility that Christ transforms us into, and how that really plays an important part in our journey. And one of the places that I think we see this transformation very clearly, that we may not really have thought about very much, is actually in the story of Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, most of us, I think, are real familiar with the story of Mary that we have in the Christmas stories. We read it every Christmas, and the story of how the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and and she was impregnated and became uh, pregnant with the the child Jesus, and she gave birth to Jesus. That's mostly the story of Mary that we know. But what's really interesting is we read in the beginning of Acts, and Acts is the second part of a two-part volume that Luke writes. The first volume is Luke, where the story of of Christmas that we read every Christmas comes from. But he also wrote Acts, which is part two of his story. And it begins with the 40 days in the aftermath of Jesus' resurrection. The Gospel of Luke ends with Jesus' resurrection. The book of Acts begins with the 40 days immediately after that, and throughout that time, the risen Jesus appeared to many of Jesus' followers throughout that time period. And it ends, the beginning of the book of Acts ends with Jesus' ascension into heaven. And I'm going to pick up in reading in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 12, right after the ascension has happened. And this is Acts 1, verses 12 through 14. It says, Then they, and that would be the disciples, then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And it's very interesting to me that with that one simple phrase, where Mary is included now in this upper room scene, it becomes very clear that Mary, the mother of Jesus, has now actually become a follower of the risen Christ. All right, so I'm up here, and I'm doing a sermon on humility, I'm gonna start with a story that I'm afraid sounds like I'm tooting my own horn. And I really don't mean to do that, but it's gonna serve as an illustration for you. So a lot of you know that before I went into ministry, I was an aerodynamics engineer, spent many years doing that career. Uh, the reason that I did that is because all the way back uh, into junior high, high school, I was always in my—I was always the, the math and science whiz. I mean, I just got it. There was never a term, never a semester where I didn't get an A in any math or science classes. So it kind of made sense that I would go into that career. And, and all of my friends would, would kind of come to me, they'd say, Greg, tutor me, I, I'm, I'm failing math, I need help. And I'd, I'd sit with them, I'd work with them, I'd help them with their math and, and, and help them to kind of do better on their tests and homework and everything. But I went to a high school in eastern West Virginia that was fairly small. And the highest level of math that we had in that school was actually trig, trigonometry. There was no calculus taught in my high school at all, it wasn't even an option. And so, like I said, I aced all of those math classes. I leave and I go to college. And I walk into the first day of my Calculus 1 class. And there's about 80 or 90 of us in the room, much bigger than I'm used to. And the first thing the Calc 1 professor says is So raise your hand if you've already had Calculus 1. And every hand in that room goes up. And I'm looking around and I'm like, and the professor says, okay, wait, 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 put your hands down, put your hands down, raise your hand if you have not had calculus one before. My hand went up and way back there, a girl's hand went up. We kind of made eye contact and the professor looks at both of us and goes, try to keep up. Whoa, yeah. And I got to tell you, I went from never not getting an A, to being thrilled beyond imagination to come out of that class with a B+. I was so happy to come out of that with a B+. But I gotta tell you, the only reason that I came out of that class with a B+, is because all these new friends that I made at college, right? they were willing to do what I had always done for everybody else, and that is to tutor me, to coach me to help me with my homework, to bring me along in that math class. And I gotta tell you, that was bruising to my ego. It was really hard to kind of make that transition to go from being the tutor to being the two I don't know if that's a word, I don't think it is, to go from being the tutor to being the one being tutored, I guess is the right way to say that. It was really hard, it really was. But you know what? The reality is in life, sometimes in our lives, we do. We're in places in our lives where we need to lead because the, we're the ones who need to lead. But sometimes, sometimes we're at a place in our lives where what we need to do is take a step back and follow. Sometimes we're actually called to take a step down, right? To go from being a leader to being a follower. And sometimes we're called to take a step up To go from being a follower to step up into the position of a leader. And so over the next two weeks, this week and next week, I'm going to be talking about both of these. Because the fact is that the, the transformation in Jesus Christ sometimes entails one of these, and sometimes it actually entails the other. Sometimes Jesus turns followers into leaders, but sometimes Jesus turns leaders into followers. And I really think it's important that we start this week by looking at that, to start with the way Jesus calls leaders to be followers because honestly we can't become the kind of Christian leaders that God wants us to be without first having this trait that we learn really quickly when we successfully transition from being a leader to being a follower. And of course that trait is humility. If we haven't learned humility first, We really won't ever understand what Christian servant leadership is really all about. And I think we all know one of the best places we learn humility is when we find ourselves, right, transitioning from this place of being a leader to being a follower. Which is where I really think this story of Mary, maybe in a way you haven't thought of it before, the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus, I think it can really be such an example for us. Now, Mary actually only appears in a few stories in the Gospels. We're all very familiar with some of those stories. But really, overall, she only shows up a few times. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and the Gospel of Luke, both of those Gospels are the two that tell us the Christmas story. The story of how Mary was a young girl who gave birth to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's in both Matthew and Luke. Luke actually then goes on and tells us a few more stories. Luke tells us how Mary and Joseph together took Joseph, the infant Joseph, eight days old, to be circumcised. And then most of us learn at some point the story of when Mary and Joseph, the whole family, go to Jerusalem and they're on their way back and where's 12-year-old Jesus? Nobody can find 12-year-old Jesus. It turns out he's left the group, kind of abandoned them and gone back to the temple. So we have a scene there with Mary and Luke's gospel. And then Luke actually has another time when Mary tries to see Jesus in Jesus' adult ministry. It doesn't really tell us why, but she's trying to go. She's trying to see her son, and she can't get through the crowds. There are so many crowds there around Jesus that she can't get through to see him. And all we really know is she's trying to go see him. There's also this very interesting story in Mark. It talks really about Mark's family. It's not very clear for sure if Mary's there or not. She might have been. But I say this is a really interesting story because in this story it says Jesus' family showed up, tried to take charge of Jesus because they're afraid he might be out of his mind with what he's going around and doing and teaching. It's very possible Mary is there for that scene as well. It might have just been Jesus' brothers and sisters who did that. And then the Gospel of John. There's a story at the beginning of the Gospel of John about how Jesus and his mother go to a wedding in a town called Cana, and the very first thing that Mary does is say, Jesus, Jesus, they're, they're running out of wine. They're running out. You've got to fix this, Jesus. And then, of course, all four Gospels have Mary present, as we would expect, at the crucifixion, and the scene of the crucifixion of Jesus. Mary is present there in all four of those Gospels. But what's interesting, if you think about all of these stories, in each one of these stories, Mary is very clearly presented in the role of mother. She is in these scenes as Jesus' mother. She gives birth to Jesus. She brings him to do what the mothers did in that day, to be circumcised. She worries to death as a mom when they can't find him, and he's gone off to the temple in Jerusalem by himself. She misses him. She hasn't seen him. She wants to see him. The crowds are dominating his time, and she just wants to go see her boy. She can't get through to him. In the other story, maybe she worries. She's so worried, he might not even be in his right mind with everything that's going on. She wants to get him and take care of him. She tries to get him to do what she thinks needs to be done. We're at this wedding. Jesus, take care of it. And of course, she grieves his death at the cross. And in each one of these scenes, we really see Mary doing the kinds of things any mother, I would like to think, would do in those situations. But then, at the end of the Gospels, in the book of Acts, we suddenly see Mary present in an entirely new way. She's present with them, not as a mother, but as a follower of Jesus. Jesus has ascended into heaven. The disciples have gathered in an upper room. It might be the very same upper room where they had recently, 40 days ago, had the last supper. And this time... The women are there, the woman who'd followed him all along. But now Mary, his mother, is present in that scene as well. And what it says is that it says that after they choose a man named Matthias to replace Judas, the betrayer, they need 12. They want a group of 12 in the core leadership. So they, have a, they, they do that. They gather there. They choose Matthias to replace Judas. And then it says the Holy Spirit comes and descends upon all of them, all of them as a group empowering them to become these public witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And I think it's so important for us to see, as I said, Luke divides his story into two parts, the story of Jesus, and then the story of the church, Luke and Acts. And Luke has Mary present, right? Importantly, at the very beginning of Luke, where she is overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit, at the conception of Jesus, giving birth to Jesus, And now, at the beginning of the book of Acts, Mary is there too as an important player in this scene where now the Holy Spirit comes down on an entire group of followers and overcomes that group at the conception of the church, giving birth to the church. Mary is there for the birth of Jesus. She's there for the birth of the church, both of them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 1 through 4 says this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, all together, disciples, the women, Mary. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. See, it was the power of the Holy Spirit that first made Mary the mother of Jesus, but it was likewise the power of the Holy Spirit that transforms Mary into a founding member of the church. In this scene, she's really gone from being the mother of the human Jesus to being a follower of the risen Christ. I want us to think a minute about what that transformation really means and what that would really entail. Because I have two wonderful adult daughters, two beautiful daughters. They're both actually, its kind of freaks me out to think about, they're both about the same age Jesus would have been during his ministry. One's 28, the other one's 31. And they're—they're they're, they're great independent women. They have their own careers, they have their own lives. But my relationship with them is still the relationship of a father, even though they're that age, right? I mean, they still, sometimes they come to me for guidance. I give them advice, whether they want it or not. They come to me still when they're hurting and they need to be comforted. It's what fathers do. To suddenly live into a reality where those tables were turned, right? Where all of a sudden I would be like, well, I need to go to them for guidance. I need to get advice from them about how I should live my life. When I'm hurting, they're the ones that I would go to to receive comfort, right? That would be really difficult for me to fathom. And yet I want us to think about the fact that's exactly what Mary goes through. Mary goes from being the mother of Jesus and everything being a mom entails to being a follower of Jesus. That's a big transition. Sometimes, that's exactly the kind of transformation that an encounter with Jesus works in us. It can be hard. It can be really hard when we've risen to a place of leadership where we've been the one kind of taking care of someone over something, to suddenly realize that the best way to accomplish a greater good is actually to take a step down, to lower ourselves rather than to remain in charge. But it's not just Mary, not just Mary who took that kind of a step, Jesus, right? Jesus himself did the very same thing in the incarnation, in becoming human. He demonstrates the exact same thing. Paul writes about it most beautifully in Philippians chapter 2, 6 through 8. Referring to Jesus, he says, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So here's something interesting, okay? Dictionary definitions of humility. Dictionary definitions of humility always tend to suggest that humility is a negative, undesirable trait, something you really don't want, an undesirable trait. It's really, they say, about having this very low sense of self-worth, The Oxford English Dictionary defines humility this way, a modest or low view of one's own importance. Well, No wonder people don't think humility is a desirable trait. A modest or low view of one's own importance. But folks, Christian humility is not like that at all. It's not like that at all. Christian humility is about recognizing our own enormous value, our own enormous importance in the eyes of God, but not laying claim to it, not grasping it, as Philippians talks about with regard to Jesus. It's about being willing to set aside that incredibly high importance, that incredibly high self-worth, to set it aside to take on even lowest roles imaginable, if that's what God is calling us to do. Christian humility embraces the fact that taking a step down, doing the work no one else wants to do, can't affect our worth in the eyes of God. They are not related. Being humble has nothing to do with your own self-value, your own self-importance. Jesus says this, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies. Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. But At the same time that Jesus is talking about our worth in the eyes of God, he says this. Those who exalt themselves, right? Those are the kind of people who say, well, I'm too important for that kind of a role. Right? Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Okay, so each and every one of us, each and every one of us is valuable beyond measure, but we can never let that sense of self-worth prevent us from doing whatever it is that God asks us to do, whether that involves taking a step up, or maybe it involves taking a step down. The next week we're gonna look at this concept of servant Christian leadership, Christian servant leadership. Because even when Christ calls us to lead, he calls us to do it from a place that begins in humility. But we're human, and it hurts our sense of pride to believe that God might actually be asking me, me, to step aside and let someone else lead. And ask me to follow. But sometimes, folks, sometimes that's exactly what God calls us to do. Sometimes our encounter with Christ transforms us in such a way that we really are able to embrace the truth that we might not be the best person for a given job. We need to humbly step out of the position of a leader and into the position of a follower. But that can be hard. So way back in 1755, a guy named John Wesley, founder of the Methodist movement, he took this prayer and he adapted it. He had a gathering of people who were gathering to do kind of what we do during Lent, to focus on a recommitment of their lives to Christ. And he takes this prayer and he adapts it, and this prayer captures the spirit of what I've been talking about today, this call that Christ places on our lives. And this prayer actually became so popular in the next 25 years after that that he published it in a pamphlet so that it could be distributed even more widely. And it became actually one of Methodism's earliest contributions to the liturgy and and, of Protestantism in general. It's known as the Wesleyan covenant prayer. And it's this very powerful prayer about submission of our whole selves to the Lordship and the will of Christ. So I invite you to hear the words of this prayer. I'm gonna read it first. So you can hear what these words say and think about them in your own lives. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will, rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven, amen. So having heard those words, and hoping you see the relevance to what it is I'm talking about both this week and next week. If that's a prayer you're willing and able to pray, then we're going to go over that prayer. I'm going to read that prayer again, and silently in your seats, I want you to truly consider an honest reflection whether that's a prayer that you're able to make before God. And if so, in your hearts, pray this prayer along with me now. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will, rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven, amen. So I'm convinced that Mary, Jesus' mother, understood and believed the spirit of this prayer 2,000 years before it was written. Mary submitted herself to go from being a mother to Jesus to being a follower after 33 years of relating to him as mother. John the Baptist I talked about, he understood what it meant to become less so that Jesus could become more and he demonstrated that willingness. And Jesus, right? Jesus laid aside his divinity, taking the form of a human, a human servant who would even go to the cross. The examples are all there for us to see. And so my prayer is that our own encounters with Christ this Lenten season will transform us too, as we all learn to live into that spirit of humility. Amen and amen.